Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, again from the friendly confines of the London Le Showdown, but uh, for the last time for about a month or so, because the uh, play I've been in for low these many months in London and then uh, across the southern provinces has uh, finally come to an end. We shan't be doing that again. So, um, and besides, you know, no matter how well acclimated one may uh, think one is to a different country, somehow, deep down, in your bones, in your heart, in your soul, you really do, after a while, need to get back to the place where it's possible to hear lists of side effects on the television every day. If you, uh, if you think golf on television is mesmerizing, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, have a, a suggestion for you. Come over here to uh, Great Britain, where public service broadcasting is so well entrenched that they actually broadcast golf on the radio. Think of it. Now, I was uh, riding in a cab over uh, to the London Le Chaudhomme today. Tom? Le London Le Chaudhomme? Yeah. And uh, the driver was listening, as a matter of fact, to golf on the radio. And uh, it was the end of perhaps the entire shebang. I think that's a technical golf word for the Ryder Cup tournament. Or maybe it was just the end of a match. I don't know. I really wasn't paying that close attention. But whatever it was the end of, the uh, commentator, with a very excited crowd in the background, but yet it was golf, said uh, of the impact of losing the Ryder Cup. uh, And the impact, particularly he was thinking about, on the rookies on the American team. Said these words. It doesn't mean anything, but it does mean something. And, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. And yet I could. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the war, I bet the Scots are really glad they voted to stay inside the United Kingdom because now they're at war. Now now their planes are uh, flying over Iraq and not dropping anything. But if it's... You know, the the national security interest of Britain and also a little bit of the United States with all this uh, Islamic State stuff seems to be centered around this prop- proposition that citizens of our two countries get radicalized, go over to Syria, join IS, learn how to do that stuff, come back to the United States and Great Britain, and wreak terrorist havoc. And it's a frightening proposition, I'll grant you. But we've already established, I think, thanks to the United States government, that it's okay, legally, ethically, every other way, for the United States to uh, dispatch a drone and kill an American jihadist without without so much as a how do you, how do, you do, without so much as a fair, fair the well, without so much as a trial, trial? That's so 19th century um, that that's cool, right, it, uh, it, overseas. So why not 
you know, instead of fretting about these these people coming back home, open the door, let them back in, welcome them back, and then track them and drone them. You're welcome. Hello, welcome to the show. As the clerk at the late Unlamented Tower Records once said to my wife, Ella who? From London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly, Dateline Vatican City. The Vatican has accused the UN Human Rights Committee of spreading confusion, violating its own norms, and the Church's religious freedom with a controversial report into the Vatican's record on child sexual abuse. Coming out swinging. With both gloves, the Vatican released its formal response to a February report. Didn't take them that long to decide on an approach. Uh, the a report by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, which, among other things, accused the Vatican of maintaining a code of silence that enabled priests to sexually abuse tens of thousands of children worldwide over decades with impunity. Now with impunity. Now with impunity added for better results. You know... 
did I, I think I mentioned on this broadcast my affection for that word uh, a little while ago. I think I was in New Orleans at the time. Uh, the Washington Post had quoted a State Department official as explaining why uh, corruption was so endemic in Afghanistan and so hard to, to uh, wipe out. And he said, well, you know, they, they live in a culture of impunity. Really? Just them. Nobody else. Anyway, uh, yes, the committee accused the Vatican of, of this culture of silence, code of silence, basically a culture of impunity. The uh, committee monitors implementation of the U.N. Child Rights Treaty. Oh, another U.N. Treaty. <laughs> the Holy See was forced to testify it as a signatory to the treaty. Imagine their delight. So in its response, the Vatican insisted it's only responsible for implementing the treaty within the confines of the city-state called the Vatican. Had they have no control over the whatever is done in the rest of the Catholic Church. That's good news. And an El Al flight, Israel Airlines, flight from New York to Tel Aviv was turned into an 11-hour nightmare, according to the British newspaper The Telegraph, after hundreds of ultra-Orthodox Jewish passengers, male Jewish passengers, refused to sit next to women. According to those on board, the flight descended into chaos, not into lower clouds, but into chaos because of their demands. The flight was full of Israeli, secular, Orthodox, and ultra-Orthodox Jews, known as Haridim, Haredim, flying home to celebrate the Jewish New Year. Even though the passengers had been pre-assigned seats before boarding, the ultra-Orthodox Jews refused to accept the arrangements because their beliefs require that men and women are segregated. As the aircraft prepared to take off, the Haredi men, distinguishable by their black suits and in many cases wide-brimmed black hats, stood in the aisles rather than sit down, delaying the departure. Others on board told a Jewish news, an Israeli news service of their frustration, which was shared by the pilot who pleaded for everyone to sit down. People stood in the aisles and refused to go forward, said Amit Ben Natan, a passenger on the flight. Although everyone had tickets with seat numbers that they purchased in advance, he says, they asked us to trade seats with them and even offered to pay money since they cannot sit next to a woman. It was obvious the plane wouldn't take off as long as they kept standing in the aisles, unquote. The flight did eventually take off after the Orthodox men, ultra-Orthodox men, agreed to take their places to permit departure before the chaos resumed once the seatbelt signs were switched off. One passenger described the entire experience as an 11-hour nightmare. Hey, that's three extra hours. News of the godly. Ladies and gentlemen, it is so copyrighted to feature this broadcast, and now we're not number one. Despite recent progress in preventing the deaths of its youngest citizens, the United States' infant mortality rate is fourth highest. Only fourth highest. We're not even number one among 29 of the world's most developed nations, according to a new report from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. With 6.1 infant deaths per every 1,000 live births in 2010, the U.S. mortality rate was more than double those of Finland. There they go again with the Finland, Japan, Portugal, and Switzerland. Uh, sorry, and Sweden in addition to trailing most European, most European countries. Damn Europe, you know, with their Europeanness thing. The U.S. also lagged behind South Korea, Israel, Australia, and New Zealand in 2010. The mortality rate, the infant mortality rate, measures deaths of babies before their first birthday. 
The U.S. had 23,985 such deaths in 2011. Is that okay with all you pro-life people? Some of the countries did not report deaths of extremely premature babies born only 22 or 23 weeks into a pregnancy, so the CDC researchers did a separate ranking that excluded births before 24 weeks of gestation. The U.S. fared a little bit better in that analysis, 4.2 infant deaths per 1,000. That was lower than Poland. Stand up and take a bow, USA. And Northern Ireland, but still double the rate for that damn Finland and Sweden. The longer the gestation period, the more the U.S. lagged behind other developed countries. The report did not address the reasons why so many American babies died during their first year of life. Other research from the CDC has found that five conditions, serious birth defects, premature births, sudden infant death syndrome, injuries, and maternal complications during pregnancy account for 58% of infant deaths in the United States. We are not. Number one. I can live with that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? One might well ask. The Government Accountability Office this week issued a new report showing that Ohio is the only state among eight fracking states studied that allows waste fluids from oil and gas wells to be disposed of without disclosing the chemicals the wastewater contains. That's for your protection. The report, created as a request from seven Democratic U.S. senators and Congress critters, studied eight states known for its their, their fracking booms, California, Colorado, Kentucky, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Texas. All but Ohio require waste disposal companies to provide some information on the waste content before getting a permit to dispose of it, primarily by injecting it in wells deep underground where it can never do anything to anyone because it's water and this is the earth. Many states studied have stringent disclosure requirements before a permit for disposal is issued. However, has none before or after a permit is issued. The operators and uh, the office, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, may monitor the chemical content if they feel like it, but they don't have to. It's a voluntary program. Voluntary oversight, ladies and gentlemen. Go monitor yourself. And concerns that fluids from hydraulic fracking are contaminating drinking water abound. Now scientists bring to light another angle that adds to the controversy. A new study appearing in the American Chemical Society journal Environmental Science and Technology has found that discharge of fracking wastewaters to rivers, even after passing that wastewater, through treatment plants could be putting the drinking water supplies of downstream cities at risk. So please move because we got a frack. No, there's more. William uh, Mitch, Avner Vengosh and colleagues point out that the disposal of fracking wastewater poses a major challenge for the companies that use the technique, which involves injecting, as you know, millions of gallons of fluids into shale rock formations to release oil and gas. The resulting wastewater is highly radioactive and contains high levels of heavy metals and salt call, salts called halides, which include bromide, oh, that old thing again, chloride, and iodide. One approach to dealing with this wastewater is to treat it in municipal or commercial treatment plants and then release it into rivers. The problem is 
these plants don't do a good job at removing halides. They don't do a good job, by the way, incidentally, on another subject, in removing the um, traces of psychoactive chemicals and antibiotic medications that people pee out into wastewater, which goes into the water supply and then into the drinking water. Researchers have written back to the story. Researchers have raised concern that halide contaminated surface waters subsequently treated for drinking purposes with conventional methods such as chlorinization or ozonation. Hey, we're all part of the ozone nation, aren't we? Could lead to the formation of toxic byproducts. Mitch's team set out to see if that was indeed the case. The researchers diluted river water samples of fracking wastewater, simulating real-world conditions when wastewater gets into the environment. In the lab, they then used current drinking water treatment methods on the samples. They found that even in concentrations as low as 0.01%, up to 10 times that much, toxic compounds formed. Based on their findings, the researchers recommend either that fracking wastewater should not be discharged at all into surface waters. Good luck with that. Or the future water treatment includes specific halide removal techniques. And good luck with that. To which, ladies and gentlemen, one can only say, what the frack? And now, news of the warm, won't you? Soft listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. The award-winning news of the warm, won't you? Arctic sea ice coverage continued its below-average trend this year. The ice declined to its annual minimum earlier this month, according to NASA's National Snow and Ice Data Center. Over this summer, Arctic sea ice melted back from its maximum extent reached in March to a coverage area of 1.94 million square miles. This year's minimum extent is similar to last year's, similar to last year's, and below the 1981-2010 average of 2.4 million square miles. Arctic sea ice coverage this year is the sixth lowest recorded since 1978. Even with a relatively cool year, the ice is so much thinner than it used to be, said Walter Meyer, research scientist at NASA. It's more susceptible to melting. This summer, the Northwest Passage above Canada and Alaska did remain ice-bound, although a finger of open water stretched north of Siberia. You can see it from here in the Laptev Sea which is the farthest north open ocean has reached since the late 1970s. Summer sea ice has covered more of the Arctic in the last two years than in in 2012's record low summer, but this is not an indication the Arctic is returning to average conditions. Said one of the researchers, this year's minimum extent remains in line with a downward trend. The Arctic Ocean is losing about 13% of its sea ice per decade. So, have your Arctic Ocean at room temperature. As climate change grips the Arctic, how much carbon is leaving its thawing soil and adding to Earth's greenhouse effect? The question has long been debated by scientists. A new study conducted as part of NASA's... You know, why don't we just shut down NASA and we don't have to hear about this? NASA's Carbon and Arctic Reservoirs Vulnerability Experiment, yes, that spells CARV, shows just how much work needs to be done to reach a conclusion on this and other basic questions about the region that seems to be warming the fastest. Lead author Josh Fisher of JPL analyzed 40 computer models of the amounts and flows of carbon in the Elastic Arctic, Alaskan Arctic and boreal ecosystems. His team found wide disagreement among the models. They should eat more, highlighting the urgent need for more measurement from the region. 
models represent scientists' integrated understanding of Earth processes and systems. We all knew there were big uncertainties in our understanding. We wanted to quantify their extent, said Fisher. That extent proved to be greater than almost anyone expected. The results were shocking to most people, he said. Pinpointing the extent and areas of uncertainty is the first step towards reducing them, one hopes. A surge in atmospheric CO2 saw levels of greenhouse gases reach record levels in 2013, according to new figures. The World Meteorological Organization says it highlights the need for a global climate treaty, but UK's Energy Secretary says any such agreement might not contain legally binding emissions cuts. The annual greenhouse gas bulletin doesn't measure emissions from power station smokestacks, but instead records how much of the warming gases remain in the atmosphere after the complex interactions that take place between the air, the land, and the oceans. About half of all emissions are taken up by the seas, trees, and other living things. According to the bulletin, the globally averaged amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached 396 parts per million in 2013, an increase of almost three parts per million over the previous year. The Greenhouse Gas Bulletin shows that far from falling, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere actually increased last year at the fastest rate for nearly 30 years, said the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization. Atmospheric CO2 is now at 142% of the levels in 1750 before the start of the Industrial Revolution. The climate system is not linear. It's not straightforward. It is not necessarily reflected in the temperature in the atmosphere, but if you look at the temperature profile in the ocean, the heat is going into the oceans, said the chief of atmospheric research at the World Meteorological Association organization. The bulletin suggests that last year the increase in CO2 was due not only to increased emissions, but also to a reduced carbon uptake by the Earth's biosphere. That would be trees, seas, so forth, other things that rhyme. The scientists at the WMO are puzzled by this development. The last time there was a reduction in the biosphere's ability to absorb carbon was 1998, when there was extensive burning of biomass worldwide coupled with El Nino conditions. But last year there are no obvious impacts on the biosphere, so it is more worrying, said one of the researchers. We don't understand if this is temporary or if it is a permanent state, and we are a bit worried about that. The response of soil, soil microbial communities to changes in temperature increases. Sorry, <laughs> I'll read that again properly. The, re- the response of soil microbial communities to changes in temperature increases the potential for more carbon dioxide to be released from the world's soils as global temperatures rise. Scientists have revealed the potential for global warming to stimulate decompos- decomposition rates in soils and thus release large quantities of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is long considered to be one of the most potentially impo- important positive feedbacks in climate change. The results from more recent studies have suggested that responses within the communities of microbes could greatly reduce or even eliminate soil carbon losses under global warming. But the results published in Nature show that contrary to expectations, microbe community responses result in an overall increase rather than an in- a decrease in the effects of temperature on the rates of carbon dioxide release from soils. Oh, too bad. The microbes let us down. And deadline Washington as the world gets warmer. The Baltimore Oriole will no longer be found in Maryland. The Mississippi kite will move north, east, and pretty much out of its namesake state. And the California gull will mostly be a summer stranger to the Golden State. These are among the conclusions in a new National Audubon Society report that looks at the potential effects of global warming, climate change, on birds by the year 2080. This will spell trouble for most birds, 
says Gary Langham, the Society's chief scientist. The critical ranges of more than half North American bird species will either shrink significantly or move into uncharted territory for the particular breed over the next six decades. While other studies have made similar pronouncements, this report gives the most comprehensive projections of what's likely to happen to America's breeds. News of the Warren, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. It's time to end my lonely holiday And bid the country a hasty farewell So on this gray and melancholy day I'll move to a Manhattan hotel I'll dispose of my rose-colored chattels And prepare for my share of adventures and battles Here on the 27th floor Looking down on the city I hate and adore Autumn in New York Why does it seem so inviting? in New York is often mingled with pain Lovers who bless the dark on benches in Central Park It's autumn in New York It's good to live it Again From London, enjoying Indian summer, this is the show. Um, but you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, it's not just America where the urge to dumb down seems well nigh irresistible. This is from the Times of London. Now, caveat, this is a newspaper owned by Rupert Murdoch. It may come as a surprise to you, but uh, Rupert Murdoch doesn't like the BBC because the BBC is uh, not owned by Rupert Murdoch. So uh, take this with, you know, the appropriate grain of the appropriate spice. But here's here's the story. Uh, and this, the, the program referred to in, in this story is called the Today Program, which is not to be confused with the Today Show in the United States. That is to say, it's serious um, or has been uh, a serious three-hour-long daily news broadcast. But... Here's the story. Relentless bleak news from Ukraine and the Middle East has resulted in many listeners tuning out of the Today program. The editor of the 
BBC Radio 4 flagship show has said. Jamie Angus said successive distressing reports about foreign wars, no, had contributed to today's loss of 300,000 listeners in the latest official ratings, which covered the three months to the end of June. So that was just the start. That was just the start of things. People think, I cannot take this anymore. I can't deal with this information, said the editor of the BBC's flagship news program. The uh, program's audience has fallen to 6.7 million. The impact on the next ratings could be more pronounced because the latest quarter will cover, of course, the bloody emergence of the Islamic State in Iraq and the consequent Iraq War Three. Mr. Angus said today would experiment with shorter items and new ways of telling stories, but would not resort to gimmicks. <laughs> Sounds like the United States, doesn't it? Yeah, no, we're not. No, there are no gimmicks. It's just, just, just shorter items and the new, new ways of uh, telling stories. That's all. What could be wrong with that? Oh, sorry. Next thing. That item went too long. Sorry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. While our gaze has been pointed towards Islamic State, here's what else is going on. International media outlets reported on Friday that Taliban fighters had seized control of the strategic Adrestan district in Afghanistan's Ghazni province late on Thursday night after a week of fighting. According to Afghan officials, the militants burned 60 homes in the province, killed about 20 villagers, at least 12 of whom were beheaded. A Taliban spokesman was quoted as denying homes had been destroyed and people had been beheaded, but claimed 40 police officers had been killed in the fighting. Perhaps the most painful place to be killed. While Afghan security forces are trying to regain control of the district, some analysts fear that Adrestan could be used as a launching pad for other attacks, including increasing the vulnerability of nearby towns. Adrastan is a small town in a predominantly rural area. Elsewhere, parliamentarians from Helmand province reported on Thursday that insurgent fighters were also close to regaining control of Sanjin district, noting that the situation is, quote, critical. But wait, there's more. Let's now get to um, this current thing we're in. First of all, President Obama compared the United States' uh, strategy in dealing with Islamic State with our successful strategy in dealing with insurgencies and uh, militancies in Somalia and Yemen. So what's happening in Yemen? This from Al Jazeera English. Rebels have attacked the home of Yemen's intelligence chief in the capital, Sana'a showing the fragility of a power-sharing accord that has failed to stop fighting in the capital. Houthi rebels seized control of much of the capital last week, hours before the accord was signed. The takeover of the capital effectively makes the Shia Houthis the main power brokers in Yemen. And the Long War Journal says Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula announced that its members have executed an intelligence director in the central province of Al-Dalai. They're Sunnis. So the intelligence director identified as Mohammed Tahir al-Shami was killed along with four of his associates in the city of Radha. 
Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been active in the province of late. Last week, the group announced it had taken eight individuals described as Shiite Houthi rebels captive after Al-Qaeda broke the rebel siege of the city of Dami. Among the eight individuals taken by Al-Qaeda were the intelligence director and his associates executed yesterday. So it's, it's whatever we're doing is working. It sounds good. Sounds good to me. You know, I'd like to be there. It sounds so good. I'd like to be there to, to just feel, feel the vibe. Our ally, one of our allies in the uh, war against the brutal and uh, barbaric Islamic State, Saudi Arabia, in the space of two weeks last month, according to Amnesty International, Saudi Arabia executed as many as 22 people. At least eight of those were beheaded, according to UN observers. The majority of those executed in August were guilty of non-lethal crimes, drug trafficking, adultery, apostasy, and sorcery. Four members of one family, according to Amnesty, were beheaded for, quote, receiving drugs, unquote. These are our allies, ladies and gentlemen. These are the forces of civilization at work. Saudi Arabia is conspicuous, says the Washington Post, in being the sole country to regularly carry out beheadings. Last year, a reported shortage of trained swordsmen led to some hope the practice would weigh, but recent ed- evidence suggests otherwise. Beheading. Beheading's coming back! That's a Newsweek cover, if I ever saw one. As to our strategy of air only, no ground troops, Britain's foreign, former, foreign, former Prime Minister Tony Blair weighs in. He says sending in combat troops to fight Islamic State militants should not be ruled out. Blair said in a BBC interview, unless you're prepared to fight these people on the ground, you may contain them, but you won't defeat them. Local forces could take on the role, he said, like the uh, Iraqi troops who melted when faced with them. And it's not just Tony Blair, former head of the U.K. military, warned this weekend that IS will never be defeated by air attacks alone and Western governments are wrong to rule out deploying their own ground troops. Lord Richards who stepped down as chief of the defense staff last year, said a conventional military campaign on the scale of the attacks which toppled Saddam Hussein in 2003 is needed to crush IS. Yes, let's do that again. Criticizing the U.S.-led coalition's reliance on air strikes, he said, quote, ultimately, you need a land army to achieve the objectives we've set ourselves. Air will destroy elements of ISIS. It won't achieve our strategic goal. The only way to defeat ISIS is to take back land they're occupying, which means a conventional military operation. The only way to do it effectively, he says, is to use Western armies. But I understand the political resistance, unquote, the former head of Britain's defense establishment. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful new war we got. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now we... Uh, we make way for a special coverage of a special event. From the Deja Vu Museum in Washington, D.C., Continental Public Radio presents a special event The Great Debate 2014. Your host for this event is the distinguished moderator of Face the Meat, veteran Washington correspondent. Bob Schlepper. The 
thank you and good afternoon. As the face of the U.S. military action against the Islamic State has increased over the past two weeks, one figure above all others has appeared in public to tell the administration's story. From Cairo to Paris to New York, Secretary of State John Kerry has been the administration's chief public spokesman, as he was in a recent appearance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It was that same committee that heard testimony 44 years ago from an angry young veteran. That was the leader of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, John Kerry. Today, for the first time, John Kerry 1971 will debate John Kerry 2014. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Secretary Kerry, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit more about this current military operation by our country against the so-called Islamic State. I really look forward to this opportunity to both define uh, the threat that ISIL does pose, the ways in which it does, uh, and of course our strategy for defeating it. And all of that uh, could not be more critical for the country. During the years that I had the privilege of uh, serving here and working with different administrations, It always struck me that American foreign policy works best and is strongest when there's a genuine discussion, a dialogue, uh, a vetting of ideas back and forth, uh, really a serious discussion, much more than uh, uh, an articulation of one set of ideas and then another and they just oppose each other and they sit out there and there's no real effort to have a meeting of the minds. Uh, so I want to make sure that by the time we're done here today, uh, I've heard from you. I know what you're thinking, and you've heard from me, and you know what we're thinking. Well, Vietnam uh, veteran Kerry, uh, uh, apparently he's addressing you directly. What's your response? Each day to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake. Well, Secretary Kerry, has the United States made a mistake? Is it making another one? I know a lot of people must be asking one or another of those questions. Uh, You know, there's some debates of the past uh, uh, 30 years, 29 of which I was privileged to serve in the Senate, that will undoubtedly fill up books and documentaries for a long time. And Iraq is certainly one of them. Iraq has caused some of the most heated debates and deepest divisions of the past decade. A series of difficult issues and difficult choices about which people can honestly disagree. But I didn't come here today, and I hope we don't have to rehash uh, those debates. The issue that confronts us today is one on which we all ought to be able to agree. ISIL must be defeated. Period. End of story. Well, veteran Kerry, is it a mistake to keep harping on the mistakes of the past, as I think the secretary is suggesting? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? But we're trying to do that. And we're doing it with thousands of rationalizations. And if you read carefully the president's last speech to the people of this country, you can see that he says and says clearly, but the issue, gentlemen, the issue 
is communism. And the question is whether or not we will leave that country to the communists or whether or not we will try to give it a hope to be a free people. But the point is they're not a free people now under us. They're not a free people. And we cannot fight communism all over the world. And I think we should have learned that lesson by now. Well, Secretary Kerry, I guess the point of veteran Kerry's argument here is that American military force is not going to solve this problem, that maybe we need to find some kind of diplomatic solution to the situation in Syria as well as Iraq. There is no negotiation with ISIL. There is nothing to negotiate. And they're not offering anyone health care of any kind. You know, they're not offering education of any kind. For a whole philosophy or idea or a cult, whatever you want to call it, that frankly comes out of the Stone Age. They're cold-blooded kittlers marauding across the Middle East, making a mockery of a peaceful religion. And that's precisely why we are building a coalition to try to stop them from denying the women and the girls and the people of Iraq the very future that they yearn for. Well, veteran Kerry, your older counterpart, certainly makes a compelling case for outrage against the depredations of the IS group. The hypocrisy in our taking umbrage in the, in the, in the Geneva Conventions and using that as justification for a continuation of this war, when we are more guilty of, than any other body of violations of those Geneva Conventions in the use of free fire zones, harassment interdiction fire, search and destroy missions, the bombings, the torture of prisoners, the killing of prisoners, accepted policy by many units in South Vietnam. That's what we're trying to say. It's part and parcel of everything. Well, we don't have time to take on everything, but Secretary Kerry, accepting the idea that the Islamic State is a menace that needs to be dealt with militarily still leaves us with the question of exactly whose military will be doing that job. U.S. ground troops will not be sent into combat in this conflict. From the last decade, we know that a sustainable strategy is not U.S. ground forces. It is enabling local forces to do what they have to do for themselves and for their country. I want to be clear. The U.S. troops that have been deployed to Iraq do not and will not have a combat mission. Well, veteran Kerry, that's, that's about as clear a distinction as could be made, isn't it? We veterans can only look with amazement on the fact that this country has not been able to see that there's absolutely no difference between a ground troop and a helicopter crew. And yet people have accepted a differentiation fed them by the administration. No ground troops are in Laos, so it's all right to kill Laotians by remote control. But believe me, the helicopter crews fill the same body bags, and they wreak the same kind of damage on the Vietnamese and Laotian countryside as anyone else. And the president is talking about allowing that to go on for many years to come. Well, Secretary Kerry, your younger self seems to be delivering a fairly stark warning to you about the path this country is heading down. Does that concern you at all? The fact is, if we do this right, then this effort could actually become a model for what we can do with respect to the individual terrorist groups in other places that continue to wreak havoc on the efforts of governments to build their states and provide for their people. 
And I'm confident that with our strategy in place and our international partners by our side, we will have all that we need. And with the help of the Congress, we will be able to succeed in degrading and ultimately destroying this monstrous organization wherever it exists. Now, veteran Kerry, that sounds like a pretty noble purpose for American foreign policy. How can you disagree with that? An American Indian friend of mine who lives on the Indian nation of Alcatraz put it to me very succinctly. He told me how as a boy on an Indian reservation he had watched television and he used to cheer the cowboys when they came in and shot the Indians. And then suddenly one day he stopped in Vietnam and he said, my God, I'm doing to these people the very same thing that was done to my people. And he stopped. And that's what we're trying to say, that we think this thing has to end. Well, in the case of this remarkable debate, it does have to end right here because we've run completely out of time. I want to thank Secretary of State John Kerry and former Vietnam Veterans Against the War Chairman John Kerry for joining us. Thank you. Speaking for myself, I don't know if we've had a meeting of the minds here today, but I do believe we've had a pretty good minding of the meats. I'm Bob Schlepp. I'll see you next time. Funding for this special event came from the CPR Special Event Fund, which was supported by the Corporation for Potluck Broadcasting, which received funding from the Equal Time Foundation, reminding you two sides to any question are plenty. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. Open up the window, see the AC, free from the grips of the humidity. Time to tree your shorts for jeans. It's autumn in New Orleans Just like the springtime Without the bugs Breezes as gentle As grandma's hugs Streets start filling up With tourists and teens Autumn in New Orleans Saints back playing, magnolia swaying, shaking off the last spring's beans. Party time beginning, saints keep winning. Who knows where this thing leads? Second line starts snaking up and down the street. Glove hands clapping to the dancing feet. Friday night fish fries, white limousines, autumn in New Orleans.
Ryan's calling. Dog Miss Megan Swift return. Goes to a romancing. In your soul dancing. Soon enough to find fires burn. So goodbye to grilling. In those is willing. Fix up a mess of red beans. Welcome back to autumn. To old New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Oh, New Orleans. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. First of all, Ferguson, Missouri, Police Chief Tom Jackson. I want to say this to the Brown family. No one who has not experienced the loss of a child can understand what you're feeling. I'm truly sorry for the loss of your son. I'm also sorry that it took so long to remove Michael from the street. The time that it took involved very important work on the part of investigators who were trying to collect evidence and gain a true picture of what happened that day. But it was just too long, and I'm truly sorry for that. Please know that the investigating officers meant no disrespect to the Brown family, to the African-American community, or the people of Canfield. They were simply trying to do their jobs. There were many people who were upset about what happened in Ferguson and came here to protest peacefully. Unfortunately, there were others who had a different agenda. I do want to say to any peaceful protester who did not feel that I did enough to protect their constitutional right to protest, I am sorry for that. The right of the people to peacefully assemble is what the police are here to protect. If anyone who is peacefully exercising that right is upset and angry, I feel responsible and I'm sorry. I'm also aware of the pain and the feeling of mistrust felt in some of the African-American community towards the police department. The city belongs to all of us and we're all part of this community. It's clear that we have much work to do. As a community, a city and a nation, we have real problems to solve. Not just in Ferguson, but the entire region and beyond. For any mistakes I have made, I take full responsibility. It's an honor to serve the city of Ferguson and the people who live there. I look forward to working with you in the future to solve our problems. And once again, I deeply apologize to the Brown family. The police chief of Ferguson, Missouri, ladies and gentlemen. Only took him seven weeks to write that. David Cameron, British prime minister, said this week he was extremely sorry for revealing the contents of a private conversation with the Queen following the Scottish independence referendum. He said he was very embarrassed. He was caught on microphone saying the Queen had purred when he phoned her to say that Scotland had voted no in the referendum. He makes a personal appearance, a personal apology to the Queen in Buckingham Palace. Middle Eastern Broadcasting Center, NBC was MBC, was forced to make an apology following its release of a gay list of shame article that featured names of actors and actresses. Won't have to uh, name them for you. You can read that for yourself. 
The head of Australia's Defence Force apologized after an officer withdrew allegations he'd been attacked by two men of Middle Eastern appearance, allegations that had fueled tensions during a crackdown by counterterrorism authorities. The officer withdrew his claim without giving further details. On the behalf of the Australian Defence Force, I would like to apologize to the Australian community, in particular the Middle Eastern community, for any angst this has caused, said Air Chief Marshal Mark Binskin. Texas Hospital CEO has apologized for a screening lapse that potentially exposed hundreds of infants to tuberculosis. Health and city officials are working to screen more than 750 infants who came into contact with an affected hospital worker in a nursery in El Paso. Eric Bowling of Fox News is apologizing for a bad joke he made about the uh, United Arab Emirates' first female fighter pilot when he said, so this is considered boobs on the ground? He apologized. When I got home, I got the look and realized some people didn't think it was funny at all. I want to say sorry to my wife, and I apologize to all of you as well. I want to make that very clear, unquote. And Apple has apologized for the weird iOS 8.0.1 update, which resulted in people not being able to get their mail. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. This week's edition of the show, the program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the use of 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America, via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available as a free podcast from WWNO.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And it'd be just like having somebody's ground troops take over. If you'd agree to join with me, then would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson at WWNO, and Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program and a playlist of the music heard here on and the free Cars I Talk... Uh, free. The Cars I Talk t-shirts available at harryshearer.com. They're not free. Uh, the show comes to you for Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans Flagship Network for the Change is Easy Radio Network. Flagship station, I say, for the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London. London.